0: Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley.
1: Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse.
0: Great savings every day.
1: And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food.
0: Absolutely
2: fantastic!
3: Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is
4: everything for
3: you. With Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley to run the rule over the past week in the World Game. First edition news with Willem van Denderen shortly and of course our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Now over recent weeks the focus of the show has been on the international game and the highs of the Socceroos contrasted against the ongoing lows of the Matildas. And this week we'll keep our view abroad and kick off with a look at the J-League which has begun the stretch towards the back end of the season. And Kevin Musket, who after finishing runner-up in his debut season, has Yokohama F Marinos sitting on top of the ladder as he attempts to reprise the efforts of Ange Postacoglu and become the second Australian manager to lift the most prestigious title in Asian club football. To quote football.com, despite losing a core of quality players during the off-season and hardly blessed with one of the J-League's grandest budgets, Musket is conjuring minor miracles. To look at just how he's managed to get the Marinos firing, we'll talk to a friend of the show from the Asian Game website and podcast, Paul Williams. After that, plenty more on the Socceroos and the Matildas. (laughs) Under-23 squad lose to the Philippines Hmm. with Willem. We'll talk about that soon too. Then the delayed women's Euros kicking off this week with England getting off to a nervous but successful start against Austria in front of nearly 70,000 at Old Trafford. We'll talk to Nancy Frostick from The Athletic, who was at the game for a look at the tournament ahead and the game she saw to open the tournament and of course we'll wrap it up with everything else in stoppage time Michael you're still away but uh, for the eagle-eared listeners uh, uh, they would have noticed uh, after the 346 episodes a slightly different introduction to our show this week Michael
2: I just thought I was in the wrong virtual studio. I thought, oh, what's that, Rob? It's a a new upbeat jingle with a lot more energy. But uh, Mm. we must say it's been a big uh, couple of weeks for Box to Box. So all our listeners out there, welcome back to Chemist Warehouse. They just continue on the Box to Box train. They've been wonderful partners since the very first episode. But um, someone that uh, I know, uh, young Roberto, uh, my co-host, has been uh, eagerly talking to over the recent uh, times has been Hoyt's and I'm in the mood to change some food, Rob. You Well, right, are, well,
3: Well well, well My good friend, Johnny Ocado. Uh, look, the Ocado family are very, very connected to football. They've been sponsors of the Melbourne Victory since day one. Young Isabella Ricardo, John's niece, is uh, a rising star with the Matildas, played in the Possibles versus Probables match recently. And John and a few different mates, including our good friends, Lati Angelovski from northern Macedonia, uh, has, uh, has been a keen uh, listener to the show show for some time, and uh, and John's jumped on board with Hoyt's Food. So anyone who's listening to the show who knows anything about cooking will know that when you go to Coles, Woolworths, or all good independent supermarkets, that you look for your... Coal, your your spices, your herbs, your pickled vegetables—all those sorts of things—and uh, I just want to say a big, big thank you and a big shout out to my great mate John Accardo who also uh, this evening—and I think his timing is perfect—sent an invitation to a group of mates. He's bought a table at the MCG for the uh, the Victory Crystal Palace match, so um, I'll be heading off to, to that game with him soon. And uh, and look, a couple of other things while we're talking about the commercial side—if you could just indulge us, uh, uh, listeners—that um, uh, our great mates at Story. King, uh, Michael Tate, the CEO and founder Tony Scalius. Uh, uh, the guys have been with us for many, many years and uh, and have been sponsoring and partnering box to box all that time. So uh, a big, big shout out to the boys at Storage King. And, and our new commercial partner, uh, we were with uh, uh, the Nine Radio Network for many, many years, but uh, we've now partnered with the Ace Radio Network in Australia. For our international listeners, you could easily find uh, uh, the Ace Radio Network, a national radio broadcast network. So we now sit on uh, all of their websites up and down the east coast of australia uh and uh, and also all of their apps as well so uh, a, a big uh, thank you to andrew harrison and kobe taylor who coordinated that um, at the ace radio network and uh, and we'll expand our reach as we grow and we've got some great ideas for our podcasts into the future so boys uh, um onward and upward
5: to a bright new future for box
3: to box edge and willem yes
2: absolutely and now, willem did you like the new
3: jingle
5: I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was brilliant. Yeah, as you said, a little bit more energy, a little bit of a whoosh over the top of it. Yeah, no, big fan, big fan indeed. As you say, Rob, onwards and upwards. Let's have a look at the news for this week. The Socceroos are going to return to Brisbane for the first time in four years in September. They're going to play, of course, the home leg of that two-friendly series against New Zealand. It's going to be the side's send-off game before the World Cup, Michael, and it's also going to be their last official game of any capacity before they take on France in Qatar. As we know, players are going to arrive in camp just a week prior to the World Cup uh, and... They're going to triple up, really, because they're also going to commemorate the centenary of Australia and New Zealand's football relationship. So those dates, September 22 in Brisbane and September 25 in Auckland at the famous Eden Park. Michael, what do you make of the fact that they're only going to get a week in camp prior to the World Cup? Is that going to impact the quality of the play? Is it going to impact the quality of the first, first round of matches when you consider it for, for a normal World Cup? Players would be in their off season and they'd have probably closer to a month together and a couple of friendlies at least uh, before taking the field.
2: Um, well look you know it's the same for every team isn't it because of the strange uh, fixturing of this uh, World Cup in uh, in an odd time for the football calendar because they've had to shift all the professional leagues around so that was the arrangement that FIFA struck with uh, the professional leagues to finish just a week before the World Cup so it's going to be interesting because of a number of factors um, uh, normally there is a bit of a break Uh, for the players to gather and get organised for a World Cup and little niggling injuries after a long season in a professional club can be attended to. But, uh, you know, that'll be interesting to see whether some teams take players into a squad injured who might not be available for the first week because they're uh, coming out of, um, you know, a heavy club campaign program. So I think there's a lot of new uh, dynamics on this World Cup, which, as we know... um, World Cup group games tends teams tend to not want to lose rather than win, and uh, that first game at a World Cup often becomes crucial in your ability to get out of the group. So yeah, there's a lots of lots of um, ups and downs and um, new dynamics in this World Cup, and what you've described there, Willem, is one of them. Only only a week together before uh, they get to play their first games.
5: It is the alegoff off-season, but we do need to touch on the big news that the Wanderers have confirmed Milos Ninkovic will join them on a one-year deal. Former Sky Blues captain Alex Brosk and, of course, a teammate of Ninkovic has not been impressed in the slightest. He's described the move as a slap in the face to both sets of fans. Sydney reportedly stipulated Ninkovic needed to take up Australian citizenship as part of a contract extension, which also included a move into the club's academy as a coach post-career. Uh, and he wasn't too happy with that, Rob, and that's opened the door for the Wanderers to lure him west. i just read out the quote from Brosk that uh, Don Bossie, uh used in the Sydney Morning Herald. I'm genuinely upset with all three parties. The derby or the derby is not about the clubs. Derbies about uh, are not about the players; they are about the fans. For Nikovich to join the Wanderers is a slap in the face to every fan. I don't know if he fully comprehends that. So, where do you think? Uh, where do you sit on this, Rob? I mean, this does happen. It is it is sport. Yeah. Uh, do you do you find it's uh, you know spicy? Some people would say. Do you find it exciting, or do you think it is it is damaging for? for a legacy in a a sport and and a league where we're trying to grow uh, exactly that over time.
3: Look, I think the latter. I think most people who, who've heard my views on these sorts of subjects over the years think that I uh, would agree that I favour um, uh, the um, the storyline and out of this I think is, is a great storyline. I mean, Joey Lynch, uh, who uh, writes for The Guardian and ESPN, we had on the show last week, wrote what I think is a, somewhat of a, a tongue-in-cheek article uh, uh, saying that Milos Ninkovic joins the infamous band of football turncoats, uh, uh, throwing him into the, the mix with Sol Campbell and Lewis. Figo uh, as the archetypal uh, uh, turncoat and uh, and and villain. So so um, f- you don't have your heroes without your villains. And uh, uh, I don't think uh, Milos Ninkovic has got uh, um, or could have given any more to Sydney FC than he gave over the years. Um, uh, these things happen. Players sign. I mean, we'll talk later on about um, Raheem Sterling uh, heading off to what it appears to be his third Premier League club. I I was at Anfield that night when they they booed the house down. You know, classic villain story. So, uh, no, I think the A-League needs this. I think it needs it for colour. And and you know what? I think it also needs the outrage from people who 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 don't like the story. So, you know, I think all around,
5: good for football. Edge, in a word, exciting or wrong? Uh,
2: Exciting. It's a bit of a polarised uh, choice there I'm probably somewhere in between.
5: Let's have a look at the women's Euros, which have kicked off at Old Trafford. England's Lionesses uh, have defeated Austria 1-0 in the first match in front of a tournament record crowd of 68,871. Arsenal, Arsenal's Beth Mead opened the scoring on 16 minutes, and that was how it stayed, meaning England have made the early running in a group that also features Northern Ireland and Denmark. Sad news out of the Spain camp, though. Rob, on the eve of the tournament with Alexia Puteas, uh, reigning Ballon d'Or winner, and nominally one of the, uh, at least in the top couple of players in the world, tearing her ACL at training. Uh, and that loss follows that of Spain's top striker, Jennifer Hermoso, uh, also ruled out a month ago with a knee injury. So that is uh, a real shame before our chat with uh, with Nancy Frostick of The Athletic in a, in a moment. Yeah, no, it's, it's a heartbreak, isn't it? When you... you, you, uh, you it, that'd be like...
3: Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo or, or, or any one of the iconic great players uh, of uh, of men's football going down. She's the reigning Ballon d'Or champion. She's a, a superstar with Barcelona. We we saw only a, a couple of weeks ago her uh, orchestrating the the seven 0 thrashing of the Matildas and just how good she is not only uh, as a player but as but as a leader within that group. So yeah, real heartbreak. Um, contrasted, of course, by the return of, of another Ballon d'Or winner. Uh, at he, hegerberg, hegerberg which uh, um, you know obviously has had her dramas five years out of the squad and, and returns uh, I suppose the fact that um, that that when when one hero goes down uh, another arrives but um, but it's just the tragic in a football sporting context heartbreak uh, that um, that's really hard to get over and and you'd think that uh, hopefully her career goes on for many many years and and there's other chapters and other stories in world Cups and euros to tell but right now she, she'd be absolutely gutted
5: FIFA is considering scrapping its revised group format for the 2026 Men's World Cup. CBS's Grant Wall has reported FIFA in discussions with the federations about retaining four-team groups instead of the proposed three. Uh, It's been pointed out by uh, all and sundry, really, about the possible collusion that could play out on final match days of three-team groups, uh, such as the infamous disgrace of Gijon in 1982. Uh, It's been... Floated instead, Michael. The tournament could grow from eighty games to one hundred and four if we were to retain four-team groups. There'd be an extra round of knockouts in there to be played, uh, and I tend to think that's the way to go. I mean, one hundred and four games uh, up from sixty-four is bloated, but I mean, a forty-eight world team World Cup is bloated anyway, uh, and you can't go to a World Cup and just play the two games.
2: Well, that's what people are saying, up David. Um, they're gonna to have to. That means if you have the groups of four with forty-eight teams, you've got the um... Lucky loser scenario where some third place teams will qualify. I guess. Um, look, it's interesting. Time will tell what uh, what happens with all of this. Um, FIFA is uh, generally very commercially focused in this space, so they will do what they they will do what they tend to do. Um, yeah. Uh, look, I just wonder what commentators were saying to each other when the World Cup was expanded from sixteen teams um, in the nineteen eighties. I just wonder how people felt about that. Um, I, I feel optimistic and positive about this. I think more teams at the World Cup will be a, a bigger and greater spectacle and allow the development of the game into some new regions. Uh, we know what making the World Cup has meant for Australian football. imagine uh, what it would for some of the emerging nations in our region who get the opportunity. So, yeah, I'm, I'm generally positive about it. Uh, the format, I didn't like the three-group format, I must admit, but uh, if they can squeeze into four groups... Of um, four, why
5: not? And finally, Maurizio Pochettino has, as perhaps expected, left PSG just 18 months into uh, into the role. The club have confirmed Frenchman Christophe Gaultier will replace him on a two-year deal. Gaultier becomes PSG's seventh manager since the Qatari takeover of the club or the Qatari-backed takeover of the club, I should say, in 2011. He took Lille to the 2021 league title and has also spent time with Nice and Saint-Étienne. Pochettino took the club to a record-equalling 10th French league title last year. But, Rob, it uh, probably did look uh, that it was unlikely he'd continue after that Champions League meltdown. Uh, against Madrid. He finishes up with 55 wins from 84 matches. Okay, well done, boys.
3: Uh, okay, after the break, we have got uh, our good friend Paul Williams from the Asian Game from the Asian Game podcast. Uh, he's going to talk about another manager who is uh, on the flip side to Maurizio Pochettino, flying high in the J-League. And, of course, I speak about Kevin Muscat, who's got Yokohama, F Marinos. Uh, uh, nearly two uh, clear wins uh, on top of the ladder. Paul Williams next on box to box
2: Box to box. Can you believe it?
1: For Chemist Warehouse.
2: Great savings
1: every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal.
3: Yes, this is Box to Box, and as we set off the top of the show, whilst we've been looking at the international game from a soccer real Matilda point of view over the last few weeks, one eye has been cast on the J-League in Japan. As we watch Kevin Muscat do what we saw with Ange Postacoglu a few years ago, and of course that is taking Yokohama F. Marinos to the top of the table. He finished runner-up in his debut season, but despite losing uh, core of quality players over the off-season and... Certainly doesn't have the biggest budget. He's, uh, as football.com said, conjuring some minor miracles. And to talk to us about that from the Asian Game website and podcast, Paul Williams, welcome back to the show, Paul. Thanks for having me on, guys. Paul, do you think it's too far a stretch to to describe what Muskie is doing as as conjuring minor miracles? I mean, Marinos uh, uh, have had uh, a a fairly strong pedigree over recent years under Ange Mm. and have have been there or, or thereabouts.
0: Minor miracles might be stretching it a a touch far, but I certainly think what he has achieved has been pretty remarkable so far. Of course, he came in halfway through last season, and of course the foundations had been left behind from, from what Ange had built, and he'd left some pretty solid foundations. But I think there were some, probably some early signs that things were just starting to stagnate just a little bit. They were well off the pace when... Musket came in last year and probably just didn't have quite the same verve as they had uh, a couple of seasons earlier when they won that title. Things looked a little bit shaky towards the end of last season when Musket came in. Of course, he's a different coach to Postacoglu, so he's going to change things and Want to do things his own way, slightly differently, and there were some inconsistent results. They had some massive wins. I think they had an eight-nil win over FC Tokyo, and then they'd go and lose three or four-nil the following week. And they were just incredibly inconsistent towards the end of last season. They lost a lot of players over the off season as well. So I think that left a lot of people questioning going into this season just just what Musket was able to achieve and whether they'd perhaps slip back even further. So to have them now top of the table just over the the halfway mark of the season and not just top of the table. They're five points clear of second place. Uh, Kawasaki's a further uh, four points behind as well, although they do have a game in hand. Um, They're sitting very, very pretty and playing exceptional football as well. They've won six in a row. They're looking like Anja's side did in 2019. There's that little bit of an irresistible force about them when you when you watch their games. Um, so what he's been able to achieve has been remarkable. Maybe not a minor miracle, but certainly it's been remarkable. I don't think many people saw this coming at the start of the season. And you contrasted uh,
3: Kevin muskett's uh, style as manager with with Ange for obvious reasons. Um, is this um, something that, that reflects a, a broader Australian approach to football and uh, and how? Uh, a manager with with a higher level of quality can achieve outcomes that are reflective of of an Australian style of football. Is is that uh, a stretch, or or uh, is it something that we can we can uh, look to uh, from uh, a domestic point of view and what we might be contributing to that? Joe, mm,
0: it's certainly when you look at the way Ange's teams played, and now when you look at the way Yokohama are playing as well, I certain, certainly think it's a style that. Australians want their teams to play it's an aggressive attacking style of football and I think that's what we want from our football team so certainly from that point of view I think you know we'd like to see that as an Australian style of play but of course every coach is going to be different in in how they approach the games and I also think it's important too because you still see occasionally and we keep referring to it as well that you know Ange left the foundations in in place and, and he certainly did that but there could almost be a temptation to almost downplay what Kevin Musket is achieving because it's it's easy to just see this as well. This is just Ange's team that and, and Muskie's just simply carrying on what Ange left behind. And you know, while he inherited a squad, um, I've got a piece coming out for Optus Sport tomorrow in which I explore if you include the players that went out on loan at the end of last season for this season as well. Twenty-three players left. Yokohama at the end of last season 13 players have come in it was a massive squad overhaul that happened they lost some of their most important players Dyson Maeda obviously went to Celtic Thiago Martins their central defender left on the eve of the season so they lost some very key ingredients and and Muskie's been able to not just bring new players in but has been able to get Yokohama back to what they were a couple of seasons ago so we shouldn't downplay what Kevin Musket is achieving here. This is now Kevin Musket's team. And while, yes, the foundations were left behind from Ange, Muskie has built on that and been able to build his own house on, on that as well. And this is very much Kevin Musket's team. And this is very much Kevin Musket's success that he is having right about now. And when you do a little broader research into to Kevin Muskett, I mean,
3: his reputation does precede him for obvious mm. reasons around the world. Uh, his um, his efforts, um, well, let's say, at rehabilitating his reputation, uh, are starting to get noticed. You see some, um, particularly in the in the English press, um, some um, begrudging acknowledgement of, of what he's actually doing. Um, and uh, one particular article that I found on the TalkSport website uh, uh, even uh, contrasts him to. Uh, uh, well not necessarily contrast him personally but aligns him to Pep Guardiola in the same stable Um, and uh, when Muskie is is getting mentioned in those sort of rarefied circles uh,
0: he's come a long way hasn't he mate? He has and there was that doubt I guess about Muskie when he became a manager as to what type of manager he would be and what type of football his teams would play because he did have that unfortunate reputation as he said from his playing days but I think what we're seeing now at Yokohama, and we saw it a little bit with Melbourne Victory as well, is that the style of football that his teams play is, you know, is different to this to you know the the reputation that Kevin Musket had as a player. And I think the success, and it's unfortunate that Musket and Postacoglu are linked with everything. Everything we always talk about Musket it seems we always have to mention Postacoglu in there as well. But I think the success that ang has had in going over to scotland and having that success coming from japan i think people are now going to look at perhaps what kevin musk is a, is achieving clubs in europe are going to look at that and go we know the base level now for we've seen Ange do it Ange had that success in japan and we've seen what he's now been able to do over in europe that perhaps you know it's going to lead to opportunities and, and doors opening up because clubs will look at that and go we 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 recognise what that is. We've seen what Ange has been able to do, and we can see now with Musket what he might be able to do if we take the chance and bring him in as well. So um, it's certainly going to do Muskie's you know, reputation as a manager no harm at all.
5: Paul, I think you're probably the perfect uh, observer to comment on the development of Musket as a manager as not only are you an Asian expert, but also a Melbourne Victory fan, of course. Mm. Um, if we... A lot of people around A League circles consider that 2015 side uh, probably the high point of, of Musket and sort of one of the high points of of the A League in uh, in general. We're already seven years on from there, so is there anything that you see in Muskie now as a manager that is sort of noticeably improved or, uh, or noticeably stronger from that sort of high point of, of 2015?
0: Every, I mean, every year a coach is always going to learn and, and develop their their style. I think with Muskie, I've noticed when I watch him on the sidelines now, he seems to be a more calm figure on the sidelines as well. There's not as much barking. There's not as much yelling of instructions to plays. He seems very calm. He's just sort of in, again, I hate to compare it, but in that Ange mold, he just sits there, he just stands there and he just watches and he takes it all in. Um, He seems to have, you know, really developed that side of of his personality where he is... um, yeah a lot more calm and relaxed on the sidelines which perhaps allows him to um uh, to to see the game better to make better in-game decisions as well um that was perhaps one criticism that victory fans had his in-game management um early years and substitutions but he seems to have evolved that part of his game as well and i think he's just he's probably just refined in his mind, the type of football that he wants his teams to play and how he needs to go about doing that and going over to Japan and having to work in a dressing room where they don't speak your language, the culture is very different. I think that that point of his development and being able to develop that side of his his coaching where he's having to change how he gets his message across, um, that's going to certainly hold him in, in good stead going forward. So I think there's, there's you know, very, different aspects of his of his coaching that has evolved over time.
5: And they're still alive in the Champions League as well, the Marinos They've got a, a last 16 mm. uh, double, uh, two-legged tie against Vissel Kobe starting next month. Um, Kobe battling relegation, uh, interestingly enough, at present in the league. Kev's been here before with the victory at this stage, but never further in the Champions League. So two-part question. With your grasp of the quality of the, the tournament as a whole, how far do you think they can go? And as, also, do they have the depth to challenge uh, on both fronts in the uh, in the Champions League and in the league?
0: Yeah. I mean, it'll be a challenge for them. I think the fact that the knockout stages are being played in one hub and that hub's going to be in Japan, so they don't have to travel, that's certainly going to hold them in good stead it's not going to be as much of a disruption if they had to say travel down to you know Malaysia or Thailand um the fact that you know they can stay in Japan to, to play these games is certainly going to hold them in good stead I certainly think that they'll have the the depth to be able to to challenge on both fronts and I guess that's why this next little period is they lead up to that Champions League um and I write about this in my piece for Optus they've got a huge fixture list over the the next month they've got um playing teams that are all within the, the top eight. They've got a couple of big games. Cerezo Osaka on the weekend, who are in great form. And then Sagan Tosu, who are a bit of a surprise packet. But the two big ones come at the end of July, start of August, where they play Kashima, who are second, and Kawasaki, who are third. Those uh, are going to be really huge games in terms of, you know, determining the fortunes of all those three teams because they've already got a, a nice little gap over a couple of those teams. And if, those, if they win those games and they give themselves – some really big breathing room as they go into that that Champions League period where, you know, the fixture list will pile up a little bit. Um, they may drop a couple of points, but if they've got a big enough buffer, um, they, that'll hold them in good stead. So certainly in the Champions League, they come up against Bissell Corbe, who are struggling in the J League at the moment. Or they've won back-to-back games now for probably the first time this season. Um, you'd expect Yokohama will be favourites for that. And then, you know, they can go all the way. There's there's no reason that they can't go all the way in that competition this year. When you look at the other teams um, that are in the competition, there'd be no team there that Marinos would fear. Um, as I said, the knockout rounds are, uh, on the east side of the draw anyway are all going to be in Japan. So they'll be in conditions that they're familiar with. Um, so I certainly think they'd be one of the favourites to, uh, to make the final um, when that gets played next year.
5: And just moving on from Kev for a final couple, uh, Pete Klamovsky in the J2 with Montedio Yamagata. uh, Always huge interest around uh, what Pete's uh, doing there. This is his first full season in charge after uh, such a promising back into the campaign last year. So how are things playing out there?
0: Uh, He's had a rocky last couple of months. The the seasons didn't start particularly well. They had a lot of games away from home, but then they went on a really good run. Um, They were unbeaten in about eight or nine games and they stormed back up the table and we're just outside the the promotion spots. But I think now it's uh, about seven games they are without a win. I think they've only got two wins in their last 11. So they've hit a little bit of a rough patch. The good thing for them is the J2 title – J2 um, table is – um, incredibly congested. So while they've had that bad run, they're still only four points outside the um, the playoff spots. So um, if they can pick up that form, then they're certainly not out of the running to uh, to get into the promotion playoffs. Automatic promotion's probably almost certainly gone. They're, they're too far back for that. They're probably about 15 points off the pace for that. So that's probably gone, but they can certainly get themselves in, in the promotion playoffs. They're only, uh, as I said, about four points off that. So um, they'll just want to, you know, turn their form around because, yeah, winless in their last seven is probably not what you'd expected given the form they'd showed before that.
5: And to the playing ranks to finish in Japan, Adam Taggart is finally on the pitch uh, consistently for Sirizawa Osaka, but hasn't found the touch in Japan that he had uh, with Suwon in Korea and Mitch Langerak with Nagoya as well. Uh, he's been part of a legendary defence really over the past couple of seasons but the bubble seems to have burst there. They're sitting down in ninth. So could we at least just get a word on uh, the seasons of those two?
0: Yeah, and Mitch Mitch uh, has been injured uh, this season as well. Um, He missed five or six weeks, I think it was, with with an ankle or an Achilles injury, I think it was. Um, uh, So that's been unfortunate for him. Yeah, they're... That a new coach come in, I think they're struggling to get to grasp with the the style of play that uh, that he wants to play, and it's leaving Mitch a little bit more exposed at the back. That rock solid defence that's been in front of him for the last couple of years isn't um, isn't there anymore. And, and Mitch was the first to hold his hand up over the last couple of years while he was getting all the plaudits to say he's just as good as the his own sorry is only as good as the defence in front of him um, and they were a large part to play, in, you know, all of his clean sheet records that he was accumulating. Um, they're a lot more porous this season and uh, leaving Mitch a little bit exposed, so um, still having a, a, a good season personally, but you know not going to be racking up the um, yeah the accolades as he was previously. And Adam Taggart, as you said, finally got back on the the pitch um, just before the Socceroos World Cup qualifiers, scored a couple of goals, but obviously got injured again when he was away with uh, with the Socceroos. And it just the the move to Cerezo just hasn't worked out. He had that great season in Korea where he won the Golden Boot with Suwon, um, took the step up to go to uh, to go to the J League. Um, but just hasn't really worked out for him, unfortunately. It'd be great to see him out on the pitch because, you know, we need him out on the pitch with the World Cup now only uh, a couple of months away.
3: Yeah, well said, Paul. Um, we're all uh, looking forward to uh, to that World Cup uh, when it when it comes about, mate. Uh, we'll let you go. Uh, thanks again, as always. Um, there's uh, there's a handful of experts on the Asian game in this country, uh, but uh, none, none greater than you, mate. And uh, and not only do you do you express your own um, expertise, but um, but you know your passion for the Asian game is uh, is clear um, every time we talk to you, mate. So um, thanks again for coming on the show um, and uh, uh, good. luck luck um over uh, the coming months mate uh, with um with the show uh, for all of our, our listeners they can jump on the asiangame.net and find uh find all your podcasts all your copy and uh, and that article that you're referring to which drops uh tomorrow morning our time yeah
0: cheers yeah thanks guys yeah that'll be on up uh, to sport tomorrow morning okay stick around after the break we're going to talk
3: uh, more socceroos and matilda's edges back off the bench as is willem on
1: box to box Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices.
4: Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all.
3: Yes, this is Box to Box, a great chat there with Paul Williams and uh, just a wonderful story emerging uh, with Kevin Musket. Where will it take him? Uh, we will watch with interest. Okay, we've well, lots more with uh, Socceroos and Matildas. Williams got it all ready to go. But before we do, our brand-new partner on the show. Have you heard that jingle before? Hoyts food. Exactly. It is Hoyts, herbs and spices. Uh, 100%. Australian family-owned company, owned by the Acarta family. Hoyt's products, every single one you see in your aisle, are packed and processed in Australia. You support local Australian manufacturers, and Hoyt supports Aussie jobs every single time. And that thought alone has got to leave a good toast in your mouth. And we haven't even opened the herbs and spices yet. Hoyts changes the mood of food in your Spice aisle now, Coles, Woolworths and good independent supermarkets. Willem, I know your family are great cooks and you love your Hoyts, your mum Cheryl there cooking some great tasty food.
5: Two of the great cooks, my parents, Rob. So I know very excited to uh, head down, not to Chemist Warehouse, but uh, down to Coles and Woolworths and to uh, check out the Hoyts aisle and stock up.
3: Absolutely. And, uh, and Michael, you, uh, you don't mind a bit of spice in your food from time to time? Oh, I love to change the mood of my food, Rob. I do. It's fantastic to have
2: the Ocado family supporting Box to Box. They're great football people. They love their football and
3: um, and we love Hoyts. And uh, just look for that red packet in the aisle, Rob. That's the one. As I saw on MasterChef, there were three contestants the other day and two of them were using Hoyt's food. That's got to be a great uh, endorsement for the great Hoyt's food. Okay, well, the Hoyt's will be with us for a while yet. Yeah, we'll talk about them a lots more over the journey. What we're going to talk about now are uh, the Socceroos and Matildas. Well, am we are going to start with the Matildas. Uh, I mean, this story, uh, um, it's not on the front pages, but um, it just is uh, not what we want to hear a little over a year out from the World Cup.
5: Yeah, it's not ideal. So these are the uh, the under-23s who are currently contesting the AFF Women's Championship in the Philippines. Uh, and as you called, Rob, last week on the show, uh, something of a premonition, they did go down in their opening match 1-0 to the underage Malditas side. And they followed that up with a 2 old draw with Thailand. So Amy Sayer and Mackenzie Hawksby, uh, took Australia out to a two-goal lead before that was uh, whittled away by Thailand. So that leaves Australia fourth in the 16 group after two matches. Uh, there's two groups in this tournament, and the top two from each advance to the semi-final. So there's still time to turn it around, Michael and Rob. Uh, we'll go to you. We'll go back to you, Rob. Here they've got Singapore, Indonesia, and Malaysia. So if they can get a couple of wins together there, there's still plenty of time to turn it around. Uh, but yeah, there was just a, a, a general sense of uh pessimism around this uh around the matildas at the moment going in and they've uh, they haven't been able to turn it around in their first couple of games
3: no they haven't and uh look you know we have to point out the fact that uh, that the philippines are obviously coached by former australian uh, uh, matilda's manager alan Stadic and uh you know he was quite rightfully crowing and uh, acknowledged that it was an understrength side but uh, uh the uh, the philippines are a rising uh Nation in in Asian football as we've discussed over the journey and uh, but but the uh, the result against Thailand again I, I remember 30 years ago going to Thailand and just being stunned by the the passion that there was for football um, Edge goes to to Thailand all the time and knows that um, that you know you underestimate. Uh, um, Asian football opponents at your peril, and and this is what we're finding out. I'm just concerned, and you know, I just don't want to be uh, uh, someone who's uh, you know chicken little. The the skies falling on our heads here, but uh, um, this is not um, the sort of uh, lead in that we expected. And as Ed, you said last week um, with uh, Tony Gustafsson, uh, not even to bother to travel.
2: Yeah, that's um, a, a worry for me. But uh, we spoke about that last week. But look, um, I spent a lot of time in Asia uh, with my job, uh, with my work, and I. Um, go and see football games in my time off. And I know one thing about, um, you know, the Southeast Asian nations that are in this tournament is that their administrations and organisations are evolving professionally all of the time. They're putting more resources than we do into youth development. So any of these sorts of results shouldn't shock people uh, as these nations emerge into the football landscape. Uh, As I said last week, Rob, and I've said a number of times under this... uh, program, um, the um, type of results we're getting, uh, even with an underage team at these types of uh, fixtures, these types of uh, events are not surprising because uh, there's not enough transparency and accountability on the youth development pathways. And if you keep doing the same thing, you keep getting the same results. So uh, I think there's time to really, you know, without uh, disparaging anybody who's involved in any of the programs, it's just time to have a look at what uh, the world does, what's the benchmark standards we need to achieve and what sort of programs and strategies and policies we need to put in place. And obviously things are moving because the expansion of the A-League women's competition is one big key piece of the youth development puzzle in providing more quality opportunities for young women to play their football um, before they get into the international arena. So all of uh, these strategies need to be pulled together coherently in a narrative that everyone understands and the whole uh, all women's football community can unite behind it because uh, they deserve better. And we've got the Women's World Cup uh, just around the corner and uh, we want to do well at that tournament because we're a proud sporting
3: nation. Have I said enough on that, Rob? No, well, look, you know, you you, you are somebody who's well-connected to the women's game, well-connected to the international game and uh, and you know what a huge event this is. You, you, you know, you talk about it all the time. Uh, um, I, I guess I just reflect that, that, Prevailing view from a lot of people that uh, um, that since Tony Gustafson's been in charge over the last couple of years, that uh, that there was a template that we had hoped would play out, and it wasn't that we would gradually decline at, uh, the closer that we got to the World Cup. Willem, as a young bloke yourself, you watch uh, these events closely. I mean, what what's your view of, of all of this?
5: I tend to side more with Michael. Rob, I think that I you know we don't necessarily take in a great uh, amount of underage sort of stuff from the Philippines and from Thailand. Uh, they are certainly sides on the rise. Uh, and, yeah, it seems like the, uh, the the pessimism around the Matildas has flowed down to uh, to the junior levels. Uh, what do we make of the story that has also popped up this week, which isn't great to see, around uh, Taylor A. Michael? She requires a, a third knee reconstruction, uh, this most recent injury having come from her time with the the senior Matildas squad. Uh, it's come after the 7-0 loss to Spain. They've travelled from Huelva to Lisbon. Uh, and then undertaken by the sounds of it, a pretty significant uh, training session. Ante Juric, the Sydney FC coach, has come out and said that that sort of uh, that sort of heavy workload would never have taken place during his three years uh, as an assistant with the national team. Probably in, uh, an issue for the PFA, but is this uh, is this uh, something that needs consideration, or is this just one coach sort of blowing up that he's uh, he's lost a player who's uh, who now requires more time on the sidelines? Well, there was a number of injuries out of their camp, so
2: if they're not, um, you know pulling the Duna back and having a good look at what went on at that camp. The people that are responsible for the high-performance unit, uh, Patrick Steinford and co, uh, then there's something wrong. You'd expect they would be doing that. But, you know, there's some pretty good people employed at Football Australia in that high-performance unit that know exactly what they're doing. So I'm expecting um, those things to be managed. Um, Yeah, the fact that uh, she's – I mean, we spoke about it last week, didn't we? It's just a complete, utter devastation for a young athlete to – do their knee three times. It's just terrible, you know, and the, the, the long road back, uh, th- the third knee reconstruction is a long road back. There's no question about it. And Taylor Ray is just an outstanding individual from a beautiful family. Most of the girls, you know, well, all of the girls in these uh, A-League women's and Matilda's, emerging Matilda's sort of cohort are. But, you know, things have to be reviewed. When things like that happen, you've got to be honest with yourself, look yourself in the mirror and say, did we make an error? Uh, what did we do and not hide behind um, any... You know, don't don't. It's not the time for people to cover their backsides. It's the time for people to be open and honest and improve. Um, but I'm sure that there's the people at the Federation to manage the re- the, any sort of um, retrospective look at what happened at that camp
3: and make improvements. But it obviously doesn't help Taylor aid does it? Should, just quickly before you go on, well, a uh, question. You, you, you're very familiar with uh, um, the incidence of these injuries. I was I was doing a little bit of reading earlier on today, and uh, uh, and came across a statistic which we've discussed in the past, but uh, uh, that, that female athletes are four to six times more likely. Uh, to, to suffer an ACL injury than males in cutting-edge sport. Uh, uh, you know, we've obviously seen Taylor Ray, Alex Pataeus, uh, who we'll talk about throughout the course of, of the show. Um, uh, do we know from, you know, your experience, uh, uh, any additional um, uh, uh, care that's taken around the knees with, with uh, um, women's players? Or is this something that, that is, you know, uh, of uh, constant concern within, within uh, women's football camps?
2: Oh, it is. And um, there is some emerging studies about that. And obviously, um, just the fact that there's, you know, so many uh, ACL injuries we keep hearing about um, time and time again. Um, the, don't forget the women, the elite women have a huge workload between their yeah. clubs. Some of them have multiple clubs and in national team programs as well. So they have three different strength and conditioning coordinators barking instructions and asking them to do stuff. And I'm always concerned about workloads, especially for the uh, girls that their bodies are still evolving and developing between the ages of 17, 18 and 22, 23. So it's a big big issue in the sport. There is no doubt that there's more uh, women's ACL injuries than there is in the men's game. So obviously, is that a physiological thing? Is that a... uh, you know, as a, a preparation thing, a lack of um, sports science in the women's game compared to the men's, who knows? Um, there's also some emerging data about uh, training uh, just before and during menstrual cycles too and how that uh, can potentially be a, a greater risk for injury. So there's a whole range of different um, research at the moment. And uh, and I noticed Anne O'Dong, who is, um, you know, a great observer of uh, women's football and embedded in the, the high performance program, talked about the there needing to be more research for uh, women's uh, ACL injuries because of the spate of them of recent times. And yeah, it's fair to say that um, the evidence is there for everyone to see and I guess uh, now it's up to um, elite sporting bodies to undertake their own research to try and identify uh, methods and practices to reduce the incidence
3: of these injuries. Yeah, excellent summary there, Reg. Uh, as you say, a lot more work in sports science needs to be done on the subject of ACL injuries with uh, our our women's uh, footballers to to get to uh, the stage that we need to 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 care and um, and treat these. Uh, uh, injuries, um, Well, at least before they happen. Okay, before we go to the break, I'm really looking forward to a conversation with our next guest from the athletic Nancy Frostick about the women's Euros, our very good friends at Chemist Warehouse. Yes, as we said off the top of the show, they are back again for another 12 months. Uh, Ashley Makatich, you're a star, one of the great people out there. Rutinet Farakawa, another great mate, really supportive of our show since day one. Of course, Mario Tascani, the boss, there as well at chemist warehouse so you got to get in to chemist warehouse you've got to stock up and save right now there's better dean ready to use sore throat gargle 120 mils for 9.99 edge you get a bit of a sore throat when you travel a bit don't you But got your gargle there mate do go have my gargle absolutely yeah i love, I
2: love a gargle uh just use the sore throat from all the air conditioning that you mm-hmm. wander in and out of uh, the places that i uh, tend to sleep at night and uh you know out into the into the, um, the blistering heat of a Middle Eastern summer, though it's actually quite um, nice
3: today. It's only 37, Rob. That's, well, that's what you're feeling, well because you've been gargling. Codrell day and night, just in case you're a little uh, cold while you're away. 48 tablets for 20... 12, Do you love a good hour? gargle, Rob? I do it. My mum always used to. Well, she always started off with the salt water gargle, but I'm a big advocate of it. So uh, yeah, I use it all the time. Uh, but as I was saying, the Codril day and night, forty-eight tablets for twelve ninety-nine. Nurofen, two hundred grams, ninety-six tablets for fifteen ninety-nine. And Gardium acid reflux. If you get a bit of regurg, relief, fourteen tablets for eight dollars. Oh, you
2: would have had a bit of acid reflux in the day with eating all that tum
3: When your oh. mum said just eat a little bit of tum you would have eaten bucket loads. I know you. And still, you well, you do it. You've sat with me. And uh, watched it, but uh, but there's no mirrors in your hotel room because every time <laughs> I need have are pretty hard at it too. And while you're at Chemist Warehouse, Willem, he's the young uh, rippling buck in this crew who's uh, still out there on the sporting fields. Have you got your Inc Plant Protein two kilograms for $64.99?
5: I do, I certainly do, and the deep heat as well, Robert, this time of uh, this time of winter, and the Athletic type as well, all available at Chemist Warehouse.
3: Sure is. Both Bondi Protein Co, vegan or keto kilogram range for thirty four ninety nine. It's all at Chemist Warehouse, where the great savings are every single day. Okay. All right, stick around after the break. We are going to have a great chat. The Athletic are so generous to us, aren't they, Edge? I mean, uh, what are you know, really Absolutely
2: up? sensational. I love... Yeah. I just I go there every day to keep up to date with the, the tidbits and all uh, that means, and, and the sensational
3: analysis. Well, you're going to take a little break. Just, I oh, am. Yeah, I've to... got so much to do, brother. I, bo- I know your board's busiest. <laughs> Book another thousand guests while Derek and I talk to Nancy. Okay, stick around. That's next on Box to Box.
0: Box to Box. Hey!
1: for Chemist Warehouse.
0: Great savings every day.
1: And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices.
2: Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all.
3: Yes, uh, this is Box to Box and we are very excited to be talking about the Women's Euros, another one of those events that uh, was delayed by COVID, it was meant to be on last year but it's on now and uh, it kicked off uh, only last night our time with uh, close to 70,000 people at Old Trafford and one of the people in the stands as opposed to being the pressed box uh, at the game was Nancy Frostic from The Athletic and we welcome Nancy to the show, how are you? I'm
1: very good, thank you, yeah, yeah, all the better for being there last night.
3: Yeah, amazing. The the atmosphere was electric, uh, and I think if there's one thing um, that that struck me uh, was that, that this could well be a, a, a defining moment. Now I I do note one of your your recent articles where you know the headline said cut the patronising trailblazing talk, but um, there, there seems to be a tra- transition here that um, that suggests that there's. A, largely a different kind of crowd that follows the women's game when when they these vast numbers turn up and and I, I guess the question's there to be asked does does women's football necessarily need the crowd that goes along to the men's game
1: last night it was so nice there were loads of kids there lots of families um I mean I was most sort of excited actually to see a lot of um a lot of young lads wearing the new uh the new england kit there was just a really diverse crowd there which yeah i, I mean um which is why you know women's football is so great and and it's one of the things that really sets it apart from the men's game and some of the silly stuff that happens in the men's game that they can keep quite frankly for me um you know with crowd trouble so that's one of the you know the major advantages of uh, of the women's game and and it is perfect just, just as it is, which is kind of, um, you know, you touched on my article there, that's kind of where, where I wanted to go with that piece and just say mm-hmm. that you know, we don't always have to be focused on an end goal, um, just enjoying the spectacle for what it is and, and the brilliance of the players and, and all the supporters is, um, is just as valid.
3: Yeah, that was exciting, and as you know, we're very proud of our Matildas uh, in Australia under Sam Kerr. Um, their form has wavered a little bit in recent times, but we do have the World Cup next year, and and this is the the last major women's tournament before that World Cup, which we'll be hosting. So, if what we saw last night is is any indication of what we can expect in Australia with the travelling fans, and there's a lot to be excited about now. Um, to the football itself, we want to look at the tournament, but uh, but the opening game, there was a a, a lot of pressure on the line as Sarah Wigman comes in off the back of having won the last World Cup with her, her home country, uh, the, the Netherlands, uh, Austria. Uh, they uh, they were, you know, uh, 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 not the same standard or quality um, that we, we would have expected from England, but they, they were, you know, seriously... Uh, uh, Strong counter-attacking opponent um, that Sarah Wigman had taken the the risk of of uh, of leaving Steph Horton out of the squad. Uh, uh, they were nervous, but they ended up getting the job done.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think a lot of credit needs to go to Austria as well because they set up in um, you know really sort of solid um, block. They weren't they weren't easy to break down. Um, they were they were pressing high from the front. You can see they were, they were leading that from the striker. She was really on it. So um, you know part of it was um, Austria really being on the ball last night in terms of um keeping their their shape and keeping their discipline but um but yeah it's it's an interesting one to see how the girls started because there is a lot of pressure especially when you know there's thousands of people even just waiting for them to get off the bus um old traffic and I was kind of just wandered down to the um to the barrier at that point to sort of see them and and see how everyone was reacting and there were so many people there sort of screaming and cheering as they got off the bus so um that kind of will have I'm sure gave given them a few nerves. Um, you know, I don't think any professional athlete would deny, they'd probably get nervous for an occasion like that. So, um, but they they played well. I mean, it wasn't sensational, they will need to play better if they're gonna beat Norway. Um, it was a bit nervy, it was maybe a, a bit slow for me at times in the build-up play. Um, but you know, they they managed to get the job done. Um, it wasn't the most glamorous goal in the world, but um, you know, a win's a win in the first game and I think maybe that that'll just settle um a few nerves and and they can go from there and to be fair i thought they look pretty solid at the back there are a few half chances for austria but um yeah leaving steph out is a big call um in my mind probably the right one just because she's played very little football um although it's it's a real shame not to see her there um you know it would have been the right call either way but um you know a hard one that um yeah vegan's clearly not afraid to make
4: yeah thinking Back to Serena Vigan's appointment. Obviously, since then, twelve wins, two draws, eighty-four goals. Obviously, only the one last night, but she looked pretty happy with the win. Could you just explain what you think the main transition is between, I suppose, that Phil Neville era where uh, England seemed a bit kind of rudderless, or, or, or uh, you know, possibly even a bit of a laughing stock uh, at that point? And what what is she doing differently with with this squad of players?
1: without putting Phil Neville down too much i mean Serena Wigan's got a proven track record in women's football she walks in as you know the the current sort of reigning champ uh, you know manager of the the winners of the euros so um and before that had a very well established club career um as well so you know that in itself i think Phil Neville always had questions from the start because he just got the job um having i think managed you know been assistant for for Gary at Valencia and then managed one game for Salford so um but, you know, from what we know, the players did actually really enjoy working under Phil Neville. That mm-hmm. You know, they got on well, there was a good spirit. And I think maybe he's given them a bit more um, of that arrogance that we have talked quite a lot about in, in women's football in England in terms of trying to match the Americans and kind of have that um, just belief that, you know, they've got a right to win games almost. Um, but, yeah, she, I mean, Serena Williams sort of bemoaned the fact that she's not had many serious matches um or not many sort of um equivalent competitors should we say in, in recent matches in qualifying for 2023 world cup um playing sort of smaller nations that are obviously part-time and, and that's why I think that, that golf goals for tally is so high um it's not necessarily a reflection of England playing brilliantly but in the in a few friendlies they've had before the tournament you know they, they did beat the netherlands 4-1 i think um and, and they didn't lose in in those free pre-tournament friendlies. so um i think she's just given them a bit more a bit more discipline at the back she's very sort of steady-headed very calm she feels just like a really solid hand um on the rudder and you know it's kind of um the sort of thing that i imagine you need as you're moving through a tournament she's not going to get carried away and and all those things do add up um and like i say it's i think it's not necessarily a reflection on on Phil level that there's been that shift but again her background probably helps and and that kind of um winning mentality that She's actually won something, in you know, in, in international women's football, um, will count for a lot, but it does bring pressure too.
4: Obviously, expectations are high for England to go very far in this tournament, but of course, they've got to get out of the group. Uh, the win last night is a good start, but they've got uh, Norway's come sort of re, revamped with uh, Ada Hedderberg back in the side and Northern Ireland. How, how do you see? these uh, group phases going for england do you think they think they'll just top the group or is there a few twists and turns here
1: um i wouldn't take it for granted that they'll top the group because you know norway um, are an incredible side um historically very strong um you know won major championships and um themselves so I mean, yeah, it's it's a massive bonus for them to have had a heck back. She represents so much more than just what she brings on the pitch um, to the national team. And she's been a big part of a lot of um, sort of behind the scenes um, change and sort of the drive for equality in, in Norwegian football. So um, I would probably pick them as the, sort of the, the biggest challenges to England um winning the group. Um Northern Ireland, I think they've they've actually sort of been able to go professional for the last few months or go full time anyway, um, as a squad to to help them compete because a lot of them are sort of semi pro playing in Ireland if they're not um playing in England. So um I imagine that they may struggle, but you never know. Um, you know there's a lot to be said for playing all their all their group matches in in one place they're in southampton for the whole three games um so yeah it'd be interesting to see how it goes but i would fancy um yeah england or norway to top the group um, so it just depends how the girls do in the in the next match at brighton
4: and if england do make it out of the group a likely uh, game they will play is spain uh, a lot of people revving up Spain obviously because of their fantastic Barcelona uh, women's side but a lot of commentary recently has been about the fact that you you can't just uh, see the Barcelona side and see that that will equate to um, Spain's success too particularly losing their um, iconic player Alexia Patella so how do you see Spain and do you want to talk about some other Um, other other possible challenges or big, big names for the tournament?
1: Yeah, I mean, to touch on Spain, it's quite interesting. Um, I mean, they've not been beaten, I think, since uh, 2020 or something. So they've not been beaten for a good two and a half years of um, international football. So the hype is justified in some ways. And obviously, yeah, everyone's getting excited because of of the way that Barcelona have been playing for the past two years. But Poteas are a big, be a massive miss for them, um, and especially kind of the way it's happened—literally the day before the tournament starts—is it's got to rock you as a squad. Um, but also, you know, like you say, it's kind of you can't assume that Spain are going to be good because Barcelona are good. Because over the years, um, you know, how good have Leon been in in the Women's Champions League? And, and France have really struggled. They've never got past the last eight of a tournament, so um, it, it doesn't necessarily guarantee sort of progression to the later stages of the tournament. Um, but yeah they'll be really interesting to watch it you know they play exciting football they get it down and play so um i i'll enjoy i'll enjoy the matchup if england you know get get that in the next round um but other than that i think genuinely there's there's four or five teams that could win it um but i would say sweden are probably best place it may be apart from england um you know the Obviously lost the gold medal match um, at Tokyo at the Olympics uh, to Canada. But other than that, they've been right at the top of the game for the last, you know, four to five years. Um, They've pushed some really elite teams really far, US being one of them as well. So, um, yeah, I would would fancy um, Sweden as well to go far and they can be really difficult to break down and, you know, a real headache to play against. They've got a lot of experience in the squad, which, you know, in a tournament, um, a tournament setting, you know, it, it doesn't have to be pretty. You just need to win the games, and you know, people won't bother too much if you bring home. The- so um, that that can count for a lot um, as well. So yeah, I'd pick I'd pick them out, but Spain will definitely be ones to watch as well.
4: And maybe just a word on France as well. They're in Group D. It seems one of the more wide open uh, groups. Like a lot of people saying that anyone really could qualify from uh, themselves, Italy, Iceland, and Belgium, but. Uh, f- France have kind of come into the tournament in their usual Gallic style and and are uh, detonating a few bombs themselves on themselves. What's going on in France?
1: We always seem to talk about France, and you know that the biggest battle for them is is beating themselves and sorting themselves out to kind of get united or or get on the same page and get all their players there um, in the best condition for um, for the tournament. So, yeah, I mean, Corinne Diak made some big calls; Um, she's left out um amandine Henry who's you know just a sensational player been so good for france over the years leading player for Lyon as well um we've got such experience and you know she's not the only one who who has been afraid to kind of lead leave out over the last few tournaments so um yeah i mean they've got some really exciting players as well Marianne katoto um and and others that you know again they really are at the top of their game for either p s g or Lyon leon, leon where a lot of um a lot of their players are based, so um, yeah, they'll, they'll be exciting, but they just need to, I guess, yeah, unite themselves on page and um, and they could have been talking about France so long as nearly, you know, the nearly team. So, um, but but that that group is interesting, you know. It'd be It'll be good to see what Belgium have got, um, and and Iceland are an exciting prospect as well. So, you know, like you say, it's a wide open group. Um, and, and there's no reason my friends probably shouldn't sort of st- put a real stamp on it and, and storm to the top of the group. But um, you can never predict them, which is why they're so interesting.
3: If uh, we're not pushing the friendship, Nancy, we might invite you back again over the next few weeks um, as, as we watch the, the tournament play out and, um, and hear from you from, uh, from uh, uh, the, uh, the stadiums and, uh, and some of the big matches that you get to see.
1: Absolutely, yeah, it'd be a pleasure.
3: Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Well, Nancy, thanks for, for joining us um, this evening. Our time, morning, your time after a big night at Old Trafford.
1: Honestly, been uh, been a joy. Really happy to do it. Thanks, guys.
3: Lovely. Nancy Frostic from The Athletic. Yet another of the first-class journalists uh, who we've been so fortunate uh, to have, uh, have had on our show over the journey since we met our great mate Rob Tanner all those years ago. Okay, stick around. Uh, we've got plenty more to talk about. All the boys are back off the bench in Stoppage Time next on Box to Box.
0: Box to Box. Can you believe it?
1: For Chemist Warehouse.
0: Great savings
1: every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices.
2: Changing the mood of food. And this could
4: be the most crucial goal of all.
3: Yes, this is Box to Box and... uh, uh... End of a new era for our show after 347 episodes with our new sponsor Hoyt's Food and Chemist Warehouse staying with us again and our new domestic partner in Australia, the Ace Radio Network, which we talked about off the top of the show. We've got lots more to talk about in stoppage time. But, Derek, I guess when you've won multiple Ballon d'Ors, you've achieved the status of being one of the greatest players in the history of football, Page's and uh, you're still making headlines, then uh, Cristiano Ronaldo probably deserves to let us off.
4: Out of all the transferred gossip, I suppose this deserved its own segment. Uh, he is told Manchester United that after the one year in his return to the club, where of course he finished the top goal for the team. He was the third top goal scorer in the Premier League that season, uh, but he's decided he wants to go. And, the public line, it seems, is that you know he wants to he wants to play Champions League football. Um, Manchester United apparently, and not convinced necessarily that he's leaving. But I just wonder if there's Ten Hag in the background here. You know, he's already putting his stamping his authority on this team. He's buying players that he knows and trusts, uh, particularly from the from the Dutch leagues and f- with that Ajax connection. I just wonder edge, whether Ronaldo, despite the goals, is just not really a Ten Hag man and this might be a, a mutually beneficial separation for the parties. Ronaldo is such a super player, but
2: um, I think Ten Hag's probably looking to build um, uh, into the job and probably put together a group of players that uh, can be with him for a sustained period. And I think that's probably at the heart of what's happening here, and Ronaldo... Uh, at the age he is, wants to probably get the best out of his uh, remaining years in the game. They can't be too long, can they? So he wants to play Champions League football. I can understand that. So, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting where he goes. I mean, I still think he's an extremely damaging player um, at the elite level. Um, it's now how long he can he, he's out of his career at that... Uh, ultimate elite level before he starts to inevitably slide because of his age profile.
4: Yeah, like we saw last season that he was still very much on top of his game as a penalty area, area poacher. I just wonder that, you know, when the game isn't uh, in his half, he tends to stand there with his hands on his hips. And uh, I think Ten Hag is going to want players that are driving back and making tackles. And, and, I, and I, think, uh, I think that's probably part of the reason. There is talk of Bayern Munich and even Chelsea, uh, we know that uh, Ronaldo's agent has already met Todd Booley, the, the Chelsea, new Chelsea owner. And whether there's anything in that, that could just be uh, gossip. But um, he, will, he will pop up somewhere, I'm sure, and uh, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, going into the rest of the, the transfer gossip, I suppose, Rob, we'll give you the floor quickly here. Is the signing of the transfer window Liverpool uh, getting Salah to re-sign?
3: Well, not according to Edge. Earlier in the week, he, he he tried to sort of describe him as a as a clapped out um, uh, player at the end of his career. Um, fortunately, he is an outlier because every other pundit uh, you know, around the world in football is saying that it was one of the great pieces of business to to get Salah um, uh, re-signed for the uh, you know the, the well not even the back end. His career in thirty, years, particularly after Sadio Mane um, uh, departed, to, and um, and the, the signing of Darwin Nunes as well is um, is such a you know a, a key. Uh, visionary sign for signing for for Jurgen Klopp and, uh, and and Liverpool so i think you know you've asked me um, one uh, that you've sort of from the cricketing parlance uh, you've just bowled it outside off that uh, that any Liverpool fan's going to be sort of excited to, to to see his name on on the team sheet for the next few years and and hopefully we we just see the, the great man sort of go from strength to strength and you know hopefully that one last uh, Trophy that he doesn't have on his uh, on his mantelpiece. Uh, of course, the Ballon d'Or. Eventually, uh, uh, he wins that as well.
4: Looking at the other confirmed signings uh, since last week, uh, well, not confirmed, but Christian Eriksen looks like he's on his way to Manchester United. We spoke about that a few weeks ago, and, and thought that was good business and uh, for Manchester United. Calvin Phillips and Jesus uh, have both been announced by their clubs, Manchester City and arsenal we spoke about how we needed to say uh, jesus with the shirt and we did and he was on top of the stadium looking pretty happy i don't know if i would have been it looked like a pretty daunting heights where he was but he wants to turn into a thierry henry type figure for arsenal he says if he even does half of that i'd be um would be very happy we in fact Edge, we didn't talk to you about this one last week you you were away uh jesus is coming are you excited
2: jesus i'm extremely excited um Yeah, I am actually. Um, It's a a good signing. Um, uh, We've been crying out with a player of his quality to lead the line for a little while. So, um, yeah, I am excited, Uh, Derek. Can he take us to the top four? Um, Can he he score 15 goals?
5: I hope so. He can score 15 goals, Derek. If I could just jump in there. We spoke last week about what I thought was the most one-sided piece of transfer business ever, and that was Lukaku to Chelsea and back to Inter. And you quite rightly corrected me and said that it would have to be Pogba uh, to United from Juventus and back again. And a week on, they've gone and done the same thing again. He's back to Juventus on a free.
4: Yeah, he is. Yeah, we were saying saying that. So Juventus have um, made hundreds of millions and and signed him for free twice. So, yeah, Pogba is back in that Juventus team. He he didn't feel loved in England. I think, you know, the, the media did... Um, did sort of point at some of the stuff around outside his football life and were making suggestions that that wasn't helping his on-pitch on, on pitch form. Uh, but he's back to somewhere where he's revered and loved in Juventus. And he'll also be joined by held uh, Di Maria as well. He's, he's signing on free. God, Juventus love a free transfer. They seem to do it every season and they line them up. And Di Maria is another uh, quality player who will... You know, we'll you know we'll we'll certainly be looking for some form ahead of uh, Argentina's tilt on the on the World Cup as well. So yeah, that Juventus doing their business and. Uh, I know it's a bit of a pattern just looking at the Arsenal, uh, looking at the the rumours. And basically, it seems Arsenal and Manchester United are after the same players. Um, so, there's Debala from Juventus, we just mentioned Arsenal and United are after him. There's Serge Nabry who obviously is at Bar- Bayern Munich, used to play for Arsenal. And again, both Arsenal and Manchester United are interested in him. And of course, there's Nessandro Martinez, the Argentine at uh Ajax of course the connection there with the new United boss but apparently Arsenal and United are both interested in him as well so I think it looks like Arsenal and United will be shadow boxing and chasing each other for these for these players as they try and get back to Champions League football and it does look like the spring home the transfer rumor stuff we mentioned it last week but Sterling it looks like that's taken a step closer as well uh, from Manchester City to Chelsea and Uh, Sterling will be bolstering what is already a pretty tasty-looking attacking line there at uh, Stamford Bridge, and he does seem like the sort of player that will, will thrive there I did want to talk briefly, gents, about Euro. the Euro under-19s. So we do cover everything on, on this show. And uh, I just wanted to point out that England won that. Um, I'm not saying this as a, um, an Englishman who uh, is soon to be an Australian as well, as I'm sure Rob will pay off at the end of this segment. But England did win Euro under-19 and they beat Israel three one uh, a guy called Aaron Ramsey sealed the victory that one of course but mm-hmm. another one from uh, from Aston Villa who seemed to be a talent factory if you look down down that list of uh, players there's a lot of a lot of uh, lot of talent there at Aston Villa including the uh, the brilliantly named uh, Carney Chukwumika, who also got a goal as well I'm sorry to Carney if I've absolutely butchered that one but he looks a prospect but I also wanted to flag for Rob uh, Jarrell kwaza. Uh, He plays for Liverpool. He scored the winner against Italy to take the team to the final. He started all three group games. He's 19. And uh, he could be one for you to look out for. And one for me in edge, Brooke Norton Cuffey. He's 18 years old at Arsenal. He was on loan at Lincoln in League One last season. And he was involved and started the semi-final and the final An attacking right winger. So, you know, these are uh, tentative steps for these players. I think it's... I think the George the St George's project the uh, sort of England's attempt at recreating the uh, Claire Fontaine and and the, the models in Germany of bringing young players into the same environment as the the senior teams and bringing them through at least in the the uh, the, uh, the for this level seems to be working really well it seems to you know it seems to you know the likes of Mason Mount and uh, Aaron Ramsdale from Arsenal played when these guys won it in 2017 as well so there's a talent factory there for England. It's just trying to, trying to get it into that, that, that major tournament, uh, Rob, that's, uh, mm-hmm. that, um, th- that's the big problem for England, it seems. It's certainly not talent at this level. No, well, I mean, it,
3: um, we all remember when, where Gareth Southgate came from, from that um, that same sort of coaching pedigree, and uh, uh, you know, the young lions uh, are just absolutely chock a block with with talent. And 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 to be fair, and acknowledge their, their opponents, Israel, uh, who uh, who took uh, the the, uh, the English side to, to extra time to get to get the job done. But uh, it, it does bode well for England. I mean, certainly, uh, you know. Uh, we, we, we expect that they'll be competitive in this coming World Cup and on the trajectory that they've been on in the last few years uh, making a semi-final in Russia and then the final of the euros uh, last year that uh, that you know they ought to be top four and and, uh, um, and contending for the final but but if not this time then uh, as, as this young group uh, uh, rise through you'd, you'd think that um, they would have to be one of the favorites uh, uh, for the um, the America and uh Mexico-Canada World Cup in uh, in another four years' time.
5: Got a couple of stories out of Africa, Rob. Firstly, good news for Ghana ahead of the World Cup. Not one, but five players, if you don't mind, have declared their international allegiance. Uh, Michael, if you could remind us quickly of your uh, Ghanaian friend that you've met in the Middle East over the last six months.
2: Yeah, Sammy, Samuel. Uh, Sabi, Sammy. Sammy. Yeah, that's right. Um, he's actually back in Ghana at the moment, uh, and uh, he's coming back to the Middle East soon. I had, have a chat with him regularly on WhatsApp. He's always sending me little tidbits. Uh, he was extremely excited about Ghana getting over the top of, um, their World Cup qualification hurdles. And yeah, I mean, uh, they're always going to be competitive, but uh, that part of the world, um, where there's a lot of, um, conjecture over, uh, where people are born and, and so forth. It's not surprising that there's five players that have declared their allegiance just in time to be selected for the World Cup in Qatar. Wouldn't you think the that's one most- uh, a good incentive for them, Willem?
5: Certainly is. The one perhaps most commonly known with Australian audiences is Tarek Lamptey of Brighton. He's, uh, he's been capped once by England's under-21. So four of these players here have been capped by, uh, by other nations in their underage stuff. So Tarek Lamptey of Brighton. Anaki Williams of Athletic Bilbao, capped once by Spain. And two gents who have been capped by Germany, Stephen Ambrosius and the magnificently named Ransford Yeboah-Königsdorfer. Uh, so that is a it's win a for a Otto idea. Addo. Ransford Yeboah-Königsdorfer. Uh, and the big story of the week to close us out, uh Derek in comes from Sierra Leone. Uh, 187 goals hit the onion bag uh this week. We came into the final day of the second division season with two sides. Tied on points. They were Kahunla and Golf FC. At halftime between Kahunla and Lumbebu United, it was 2 0. And at halftime between Golf FC and Coquima Lebanon, it was 7 1. Both matches played simultaneously, uh, and word got around over the wireless that the side with the highest goal difference would win. 45 minutes later, it was Kahunla, 95 zip over Lumbebu, and Golf FC, 91 1 over Kokwima Lebanon. Both results have been annulled uh, on suspicion of manipulation would you uh would you believe rob uh we've had quotes from everyone the hunla rangers strongly condemn unsportsmanlike behavior Lumbebu's general manager said he was not aware of any manipulation kokwima <laughs> lebanon claimed it was a friendly and golf fc have declined comment
3: <laughs> and on that no comment i don't think there's any more that anybody could add uh what uh, a story, only football can deliver it. Now, you did say the last story. I'm going to save the last story for our good friend Derek who uh, has lived in this great country for eight years. He's a proud Englishman but uh, as we record tonight, <laughs> he's just about to step out uh, of the uh, the studio and head off for his uh, citizenship uh, uh, ceremony, Derek, uh, and, uh, and get his uh, Australian credentials finally, which means of course that he'll be uh, uh, following the uh, Australian uh, uh, football sites, uh, the uh, the soccerers and the Matildas um he'll uh he'll switch to us for uh, cricket and rugby and um he'll uh, get a Dave Warner tattoo on his bicep so uh, good luck to you Derek congratulations
4: oh fair dinkum, Cobber. yes I'm very very excited it's been uh yeah look a bit, a bit of a journey getting to getting to this point but uh Finally, looking forward to sealing the deal tonight and getting my getting my second passport. And, yes, I did get them to rush it through just in time for the World Cup too. So I could have someone to back. So, uh, yes, I'll send you all a photo later. Well done, mate. Enjoy boys. boys. Uh,
3: Michael Willem, did you want to send any regards to the great man? I do indeed. Congratulations, Derek. You know,
2: um, a very dear friend of mine, Johnny Warren, who's such a big, iconic figure in Australian football who – Obviously, sadly, no longer with us. I think about him often. Uh, In his book, Sheilas, Logs and Pufters, he makes it very clear that the most courageous Australians are the ones who choose to make it their home. And that is something to reflect on. So congratulations on uh, becoming part of our Australian multicultural um, family. Um, You're very welcome. And um, if I hear you saying anything nasty about the Australian cricket team from now on in, look out.
5: (laughs) Not a lot I can add off the uh, back of Johnny Warren, Derek, but congratulations and welcome. Thank you. No guarantees on the cricket.
3: Well, well done, mate. Okay. Well, off you go, Derek. Thanks again, mate. Uh, thanks again for this week. Thank you. Cheers, boys. Love you uh, Great work, mate. Thank you all. Michael, you'll be home soon?
2: Oh, yes, so I am. I'll, I'll be home soon uh, in my last few days here in, in Doha. Um, yeah, just on. Um, um, Ghanaians, there's there's a lot of um, Ghanaians uh, who work here in Doha, so I expect they're going to have terrific following the Black Stars here, uh, Willem. But, uh, yeah, looking forward to getting home. It's been a while. Um, Everything's uh, nicely organised here for our programs, and Mm -hmm. we've got a big few months ahead of us leading up to what's going to be – uh, unforgettable World Cup
3: experience. Thank you again for joining us this week. Uh, whether you're one of our, our listeners or one, one of our new listeners via our, our new uh, partner, the Ace Radio Network, uh, please uh, make sure you subscribe to box to box So wherever you do get your podcasts, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and join us next week when we go from one end into the pitch to the other in the World Game.